Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are so glad that you are listening in today. As God's people, we are concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. And if you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to always get the next podcast. So today we're continuing our series on God's Great Banquet. We've been looking at, uh, well, we're in part three, we're looking at four passages of scripture that describe this banquet. And the banquet, this wonderful banquet, is one of the marvelous images that God uses to describe the fulfillment of his promises and the gathering of his people to heaven. Two weeks ago, we looked at the promises of this banquet in Isaiah 25. Last week, we read a slightly more ominous account in the Gospel of Luke uh, about the wedding banquet, finding that guests can reject the invitation, and if they do, they'll be barred from the banquet. Today, we read a fiercer version of the story. It's one that is uncomfortable, but we need to hear it. Now, as our story begins, Jesus is in the temple. He's speaking to the religious experts. These are the experts who are supposed to be the best about knowing God and how to connect with God. Jesus is telling them that they are in danger of missing out at the banquet. Yes, there's room for all at the tables we saw in the Gospel of Luke, but they're in danger of missing out on their space. So hear this from our text today. I know it's a tough one, so listen for this. God's great banquet is a wonderful celebration. At the banquet, the sun will be honored, and every guest who is at the banquet, who sits at the table, is unworthy. Now, that unworthiness might make us uncomfortable, but the wonder of this unworthiness is that every guest is at the table at the king's pleasure, and that is a picture of mercy that we need to see. So let's read the text from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calves have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field and another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army to destroy those murderers and burn their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, and those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes, and he asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. The king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Mm. Thrown out of the wedding feast because he wasn't wearing the right clothes? I remember thinking to myself as a young Christian, well, I want to make sure I'm not that guy, and that's the response we probably should all have when we hear about that poor guy at the end of the story. 
Sometimes, though, when we encounter such strong passages of Scripture, we're not always sure what to make of it. Was the king right to destroy the wedding guests who rejected the invitation to the feast? Was he right to burn their city down? Was the king right to in, to throw out the incorrectly dressed guests so they could be so that they could uh, not be at the feast? How does one move from being invited to the category of chosen at the very end, where it says many are invited but few are chosen? When you start to pile all those things together, it starts to feel a little unfair. How do we know? What do we do? What do we do with a passage of Scripture like this? And there are all kinds of passages of Scripture that are fierce, like this one, where God seems harsher than we would expect, where destruction does not seem very holy or doesn't feel very holy. Sometimes there are teachings that may seem out of date to us. What do we do with these fierce passages of Scripture? What do we do when the Bible tells us something that we're not sure that we agree with? What do we do when we encounter passages like in the Apostle Paul when he writes about slaves obeying their masters or when violence is used to bring justice? What do we do? Every person that has encountered God's Word has had to make these sorts of decisions. So we have a story about a guest who gets thrown out of a great banquet for wearing the wrong clothes. That seems a little unfair. What do we do? And it's the same decision we have to make with all of God's Word. And so I want to challenge you today. Whenever you face God's Word, especially fierce and uncomfortable passages, you're going to have to decide. And most of the decisions that people make fall into a couple of categories. And here are a couple of those categories. Sometimes we don't even realize what we're doing. We ignore it. We try to tame it. Or we can respect it. Let's talk about ignoring it first. I know people who dislike violence. That's understandable. Violence is ugly. It's a product of sin in our world. Actually, that's one reason we need to face the violence in the scriptures, is it makes us face our sin. But sometimes I encounter people who are so averse to violence that they skip any part of the Bible that smells like conflict. We don't need to love violence. And I don't think God desires violence. But skipping every word that involves violence, that involves fighting, involves war, causes us to miss significant truth in God's Word. We all have things we struggle with, but because we struggle with them doesn't mean we should avoid anything in Scripture that smells a bit like what we're struggling with. I may be stepping out of line here. I know a lot of people struggle with their parents. Maybe they were abused. They had an abusive mother or abusive father. And then they read in the Bible, God is our Heavenly Father, and they struggle. And while I can't truly understand that struggle, I can say that I get it. I can get why it might be hard to read about God as our Heavenly Father. But that doesn't mean we avoid the parts of Scripture that describe God as our Father, as a parent. And there are some Christians who are so against, oh, let's say, the topic of alcohol, that they can't believe that Jesus would turn the water into wine, and so they, they come up with other explanations. There are others. Uh, we can actually 
think of a very specific person. Thomas Jefferson took this ignoring to an extreme. In fact, he did more than just ignore what he didn't like in God's Word. He practically tried to rewrite God's Word. Actually, you can still purchase a Jefferson Bible today. Thomas Jefferson did not believe in miracles. He didn't think they were possible. He thought science had the answer to everything, and so a miracle was just science being utilized. And so he took the New Testament and he cut out every miracle and studied what was left afterwards. That's an extreme form of ignoring, and it's not a good solution. We cannot ignore God's Word just because we're uncomfortable. But then there's that other decision that a lot of us make about God's Word. is that, uh, And it's perhaps what Thomas Jefferson really did when he made the Jefferson Bible, is we try to tame God's Word. See, he ignored what he didn't like, but then he edited And I think many of us try to do this. Did God really say the ill-dressed guest was going to get thrown out where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth? And then so someone might say, well, I don't think that's very fair. Maybe the king just meant for the man to go back to his home. Maybe getting thrown out wasn't really that big of a deal. And so we try to tame the word. And as people, we can be tempted to tame all parts of God's word. Most often, we tame three areas the most. We try to minimize the authority of God. We try to minimize the severity of sin. And we try to minimize the penalty for sin. And, well, I guess we could throw a fourth in. We minimize that it's about me and you. It's about others is what we like to say. You do yourself and the people you love no favors by trying to tame God's word. It's not helpful. We don't do any favors by trying to ignore it either. God actually warns against tampering with his word. Revelation twenty two nineteen says this, If anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which is described in the scroll, for not to take away from God's word. So we can't ignore it. We can't tame it, though we may try. We are to respect it. And that's the third option that we need. We need to respect God's word. It is his gift to us, his clearest communication to us. His word is God's way of making us aware in this dark world that the light of Christ is for us if we would receive. So how do you respect God's word? Well, I say this, acknowledge its authority. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Scripture is much easier to understand when we start with it as truth from God. I know that might be hard to do. That's a step of faith for many of us. But it will open up to us. God's word opens up to us if we begin by respecting God's authority in his word. Secondly, we need to let the Holy Spirit speak and convict through the Word. We must realize right away that we, each of us, are biased by our sin, our fallenness, our brokenness. And when we read God's Word, that fallenness and brokenness will try to, well, ignore and tame the Word. But we must let the Holy Spirit speak. Let God speak through His Word. And so that requires us to read Read often, read deeply. It requires us to wait, probably more than we would like to. It requires us to listen, 
We live in a noisy world. In fact, uh, we often drown out our own thoughts. We need to listen to the Holy Spirit, and we need to let the Spirit speak deeply into us through this Word. The Holy Spirit speaking takes more effort to hear than we'd like to admit, and we want answers faster than the Holy Spirit often delivers, and so we need patience. So we acknowledge the authority in the Word, we let the Holy Spirit speak and convict through the Word, and then third, and probably the most difficult, is we apply God's Word to ourselves first. Often when we read a passage we don't like, we apply it to others or we ignore it. And in that moment, when you want to apply a word to someone else, ah, see, that's why so-and-so is such an awful person. That's their problem. In that moment, it is best if we apply the word to ourselves. Yeah, it's talking about me. And with this in mind, I want to come back to our text in Matthew 22, because it is about me and it's about you. We need to put ourselves at the wedding banquet. We need to see ourselves as guests and hear what is being said to the guests, to us in this passage. Because Jesus is speaking to religious experts. Maybe you don't feel like a religious expert, but they were the people that thought they were in. They thought this word would be for someone else. And he's telling them the kingdom of God is like a king who throws a wedding banquet for his son. Jesus is telling us that the kingdom, that in the kingdom, there will be a celebration, a feast, a banquet. It'll be wonderful. There'll be much to enjoy. But even more so, he wants us to understand the king. And so he tells us the kingdom of heaven is like a king. This text tells us about the character of that king, about God. Most people read this story and say to themselves, oh, there'll be a party feast in heaven. It's going to be wonderful. And some people will be wearing the wrong clothes and they'll get thrown out, unfortunately. This text, and I want you to hear this, this text tells us about the king and it tells us about the king's sovereignty. We people always struggle to grasp the authority and sovereignty of God. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we humans have thought our own authority and right to self-determination. We've thought of that more than God's authority and His determination. And as Americans, we do not like being told what to do. Personal freedom and independence are precious to us. And so we bristle at the idea of a king. And and though we may want to say that Jesus is king, that the Father is king, we don't really understand too deeply what those words mean. A king has the final word. A king has ultimate authority. And a king has the privilege to take life from those in his charge. A king is sovereign over all his kingdom. He He has a final word over everything in his land. And this parable is about a king and about what a king does for people who are treasonous towards him. That's what's happening here. Think of the setting of the story. The king is having a wedding feast for his son. This very celebration is about the continuation of the kingdom. It's a big deal for the king to have children because the children will sustain the throne. And it's a big deal when the king's heir, his son, gets married and has children of his own because the line of the king will be preserved. The kingdom will be preserved. So refusing the celebration when the guests are invited and say, no, I don't don't want to come to the celebration. They're refusing to acknowledge the sovereignty of the king. 
These guests who stay home are saying they do not care about their king or their kingdom. They have built their own kingdoms. So the wedding guests reject the king's authority, his sovereignty. They reject it when they decline his invitation. But they don't just decline his invitation once. They decline it twice. In verse 5, we're told they did not pay attention at the second invitation, and they went back to their fields and businesses. You can read into those words, they went back to their personal kingdoms. I think we often build our own personal little kingdoms, ideas, thoughts, and values that we treasure more than the sovereignty of God. What do you have that you treasure more than God and His sovereignty? Is there anything in your life that you would not give up for God? If so, you are in danger of building your own little kingdom, personal kingdom. But then the text tells us that this rejection is taken much farther. The invited guests even kill the servants of the king. They mistreat and then they kill. This is ugly. This is an uprising. This is treason. And how would you expect a king to react to treason? Well, the text tells us that God's justice is to be feared and taken seriously because that's how the king reacts. He reacts with justice. The punishment from the king is exactly what a king would do in the face of treason. He would destroy the traitors and destroy their town. This is all so that others will be warned. Don't be like them. Respect the king. Acknowledge his sovereignty. His justice should be feared and taken seriously. I know justice makes us uneasy. I know we don't like how dramatic it is in this passage. And, but we need to see that justice here is a warning for all of us. It would be a cruel kind of justice if we were never told about the possibility of punishment, or if we were never told that we were breaking the rules, if we were never told that we were in jeopardy in our relationship with God, and then we were judged. That would be a cruel justice. Here we're given in God's word a story warning us about rejecting the king. And we're called to take God's justice very seriously because his justice is very real. You know, this text also tells us about God's mercy. Did you hear and see the mercy in the story? I hope you did. The king invites his guests to a wedding feast and they all reject the invitation. His immediate response to that first rejection is to send more servants to invite every guest again to tell them how wonderful the meal will be. Think about that. That's mercy. The king says, I've invited you to a feast for my son to celebrate the wedding, to celebrate the continuation of the kingdom. They reject it. They don't care about the king. And instead of being mad right away, he sends another invitation. Tell them how wonderful it will be. They'll enjoy it. It's only after the second rejection and the murder of his servants that the king brings fierce justice. Beyond that, the king sends servants again to go out and bring in the uninvited and the, well, those who are unworthy to the wedding feast. This is a much deeper mercy. The unworthy are welcome. And verse 10 tells us that the servants brought in the bad and the good. They're all welcome to the, fe- to the feast. This is mercy. Woodrow Kroll says this, Justice is for those who deserve it. Mercy is for those who don't. I love that. And I like these words from Peter Kreft. Mercy goes beyond justice. It does not undercut it. 
If I forgive you the $100 debt you owe me, that means I must use $100 of my own money to pay my creditors. I cannot really make you $100 richer without making myself $100 poorer. If the debt is objectively real, it must be paid. And if it is my mercy that repays your debt, I must pay it. That is the reason why Christ had to die. Why God could not simply say, ah, forget it. Instead, he said, forgive it. And meant that if we did not pay, that if we did not pay it, he had himself. There is tremendous mercy in this story. Do not miss it because of justice. That fierce justice that's described. In fact, the mercy in this story is every bit as fierce as the justice. I think we can see it most clearly when we see that every guest at the banquet, every single guest who finally makes it to the banquet, is unworthy to be at the banquet. The the original invited guests, they lost their opportunity. The king tells his servants to go and fill the banquet hall. The worthy guests, they missed their chance. Now it's those who were not worthy to be invited. We're even told that the servants gathered the good and bad. The, The servants go out and they invite those who were not worthy to be invited. The three previous times invitations were sent out. Because in the ancient world, you would send an invitation that would be RSVP'd. And then when the banquet was ready, you'd send out your servants to gather up the guests, which is where our story begins. And then we know our king sends out another round of servants to invite the guests again. So those first three invitations... None of the people who now sit at the table were involved with those. They weren't worthy of those invitations, but now they're at the banquet. What's funny is is we're not told who the good is or who the bad is. All we know is that the banquet, everybody that was at it, everybody at that banquet was unworthy of those previous three invitations. And for each one of us who follow Jesus, each one of us who will enter into heaven, each one of us are unworthy. None of us earned it. None of us will live well enough after, we have, after we're saved to deserve heaven. We are all unworthy. And that is liberating. There's no worries. We don't have to worry about whether we have deserved heaven or not. We don't. But we're given it. St. John Chrysostom says this, Even if we stand at the very summit of virtue, it is by mercy that we shall be saved. It's not because we deserve it. It's because it's given. It's offered. It's given through mercy. We're able to dine at the great banquet table by the king's pleasure. And this should humble us. Perhaps we'll be less harsh with others because we are no more worthy than others are, than they are. Lastly, I'd say this about the story. We get to stay at the table. Well, at the king's pleasure first. But we stay at the table by honoring the son. This story is from beginning to the end about honoring the son. That last little bit about the wedding guests not wearing wedding clothes, as much as that might bother us, it's a reminder that we do not call the shots. We don't set the terms by which we sit at the table. We sit at the table by the king's pleasure, and we get to keep sitting at the table because we honor the son.
the point of the story is that we don't get to heaven on our own terms. We do not get to call the shots. We're not permitted. We are not permitted into the banquet by any other reason than the privilege of the king. We respect the king and we honor his son. Wedding clothes were a practice in the ancient world um, to be able to honor the guests, to honor the, the, the bride and the groom. And often wedding clothes would be provided by the host, especially if the host was wealthy. Simply put, if you're feeling bad for the guest who was wearing the wrong clothes, he had access to the right wedding clothes and he chose not to wear them. He was at the feast for himself, probably just stuffing his face. Honoring the sun was far from his mind. That's why he's speechless when the king says, What's going on? Why aren't you in your wedding clothes? It has no response. It's worth asking yourself. Are you honoring yourself? Or are you honoring Jesus? So here we have a fierce passage of scripture. The consequences are uncomfortable. We have a choice. Ignore it, tame it, or respect it. Will you put yourself in this story? Will you understand God's sovereignty? Will you understand his judgment? Will you see his mercy for you? Can you see that as much as we celebrate salvation and heaven, no one, not one of us is worthy of it? And can you ask yourself and be honest about the question, are you living to honor Jesus or are you living to honor yourself? Or maybe you're even honoring someone or something else. We're called to honor the Son. Let's pray. Lord, help us not to shy away when your word is fierce. Lord, help us to place ourselves under the authority of your word, that we would let the Holy Spirit examine us. Lord, help us to respect your sovereignty. Lord, show us the ways we live that do not honor Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.